According to Oxfam, the world's 10 richest billionaires have collectively seen their wealth grow by 540 billion over the period of COVID-19. Their increase in wealth would be more than enough to pay for COVID-19 vaccine for all. While these people got immensely richer, the poorer, the less privileged, have suffered immensely and inequalities have increased pretty much everywhere on the planet. Also, the austerity measures put in place in the last few decades are at least partly responsible for the scale of the crisis we have been facing since the pandemic started. So the question we're asking ourselves tonight is, what is really austerity on and what is really austerity about? Welcome, everyone. It's uh, Let's Talk It Over 3. And to discuss this uh, and more, we have an amazing panel tonight. But before I introduce them, I wanted to quickly remind you to like the video, share it, and subscribe to our page. I do not like to have to say this over and over again, but it will uh, help the show to grow. So uh, thanks very much. So again, tonight... Uh, an incredible panel. Uh, I feel very privileged uh, to be able to share the next hour with Naomi Klein, Stephanie Kelton, and my two fantastic uh, partners and co-hosts, uh, Yanis Varoufakis and Brian Eno. Uh, Brian, I think you're going to start. Um, you're going to start the show, and you're going to get the ball rolling. So I'll give you the floor now. Thank you. Um, so despite the figures that you cited uh, showing the huge increase of wealth for a small number of people, I'm still hopeful that COVID will prove to be a different kind of turning point. Um, there's a book I've been reading for the last couple of years, which I don't think has had much take up, but I think is a very interesting book called The Great Leveler by Walter Scheidel. And the thesis of that book is that um, inequality is only ever corrected by violence, effectively. Um, there's a sort of strange echo, John. Can you hear that? It's slightly disturbing. Okay, well, I'll just be disturbed. <laughs> can anyone else hear? I can hear my voice echoing. Ah, oh, yes, there it is. Anyway, um, the, the thesis of the book is that Inequality will tend to rise because the powerful are in a position to take more and more for themselves and will do so. But the only times it stops rising decisively is either when there's a war or a plague or a state collapses. Um, so in those cases, suddenly the tables can turn. For instance, after the Black Death, um, because so many people died labor became much more expensive and for the first time in English history um, laborers had some bargaining power. Um, now we haven't had a plague exactly, not as bad as that one anyway, but I still think that it's possible that we will experience a kind of a different kind of leveling and the form that that will take I think is possibly the end of magical thinking. Now, magical thinking is what I call the phase of postmodern politics that we've seen for the last 20 years or so, since about the Iraq war, since the neocon era, basically. There's been an assumption that you could create politics by wanting it hard enough and saying it over and over again. Um, there's a new book by Benjamin Bratton, which is due out in a couple of months, in which he says that um, he, the subtitle of the book is, uh, no, the title is Revenge of the Real. And he says that the interesting effect of COVID is that it's shown that uh, the kind of macho authoritarian, I say it so it will be true, thinking wouldn't work. All the countries that suffered worst, including mine, um, were led by those kinds of leaders who thought that by the sheer power of their will, strength of their will, they could create reality. Well, it turned out that they couldn't. 
Um, so this brings us to the question of uh, what effects we can have on societies and what effects we can't control, um, which brings us nicely to austerity, I think. I think we are also going to see a revolution in economics. It's a one that started or became conspicuous, I should say, in, in um, 2008 when there was the crash, when it suddenly became clear that history hadn't ended as it had been predicted to do, and that it was still alive and well and um, guaranteed to surprise us. Um, and of course, at that, from that point on, people started asking serious questions about capitalism. Even capitalists started asking those kinds of questions. Um, and a few paradoxes or, or incomprehensible things started to appear, like for the last 10 years or so, we've been suffering versions of austerity until suddenly when COVID comes along, there are vast amounts of money available. Um, so we had been told in the English newspapers over and over again by the Tories, as they laughed at Jeremy Corbyn, there's no such thing as a money tree. We can't just make money. Well, it turns out you can just make money. Um, mm -hmm. And everybody's been doing it very happily. Trillions and trillions of money. So what happened? Did, did our ideas just change? Um, and are we going to have a terrible reckoning when it turns out that these new ideas aren't correct? Or can we just make money? This, this is the kind of question that lay people like me really don't know the answer to. Where did all this money come from? Is it debt? And if it's debt, who owes it? Who is going to be responsible for paying it? Which generation of the future is going to be responsible for it? Are, are we borrowing from the future or are we not? I don't know the answer to that. Um, what's the effect of this in the long term? Um, are we just, are we piling debts onto our grandchildren or is debt not really um, what we assume it to be? Are we not, are we doing something different from what we would do in our personal finances? Well, of course we are, but uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people would like that to be spelled out. But the, the main question I would ask in, in at this particular time when we're now facing the climate crisis, are we actually committing to a future which demands constantly accelerating growth? Is it possible to create money like this without the assumption of um, constant accelerating growth? So that, those are the questions that I would personally like answered, and I'm, I'm sure many of the members of the audience who are as economically naive as me would like them answered to. Okay. That's, I suppose that's my cue, Brian. Sorry, um, sorry. I should have said that. Yes. <laughs> sorry, Yanis. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, good evening, everyone. Everyone who's watching. It's indeed a great pleasure to um, be together with uh, with Naomi and with Stephanie, um, even if it is yet another bloody Zoom. But nevertheless, um, it's better to be together in a Zoom than not to be together at all. Um, uh, and it is wonderful that I'm not the only economist on the panel and that I do not have to answer Brian's questions because, you know, I can see Stephanie is, you know, eager to get stuck into the, these questions. And I, Stephanie, I'm going to let you answer these questions because uh, you will do a fantastic, much better job, job than me. Uh, so because somebody else is going to be answering um, uh, these economic key questions, allow me to start with a story that Karl Marx scribbled uh, in the margins of his Grundrisse, which was never published until 1939. He tells the story of a certain Mr. Peel. I don't know whether you, the rest of you remember that story. A certain Mr. Peel who was in the 1840s uh, an English businessman who could sense that a, a, a massive financial crisis was about to hit in early English capitalism, as it did hit in the late 1840s. So he decided to cash in his shares uh, and buy three ships, like three or four ships, load them up with seeds, food, equipment, everything, 
including 300 workers, men, women, and children, his family, and they sailed off to Western Australia, where he was going to build his own utopian capitalist world. He would be, you know, the, the capitalist ruler of Western Australia. Um, and he managed to get to Western Australia, to disembark, to set up shop, to start the, you know, to build buildings and so on. But within a few months, suddenly he was left alone. Suddenly the workers disappeared. Suddenly the fact that he had 50,000 pounds, that's how much he took with him, meant absolutely nothing because the workers simply walked off. There was plenty of fertile land and they went into business for themselves. Uh, and, you know, Marx's uh, 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 cynical line was that Mr. Peel, though he took with him money, equipment, and the workforce, could not take capitalism with him. Now, when I, why am I recounting this story? Because, you know, when, when, when we try to understand why are the powerful so in, enamored of austerity? Why do they hate public debt so much and they don't care about private debt? Okay, I think that's the answer, because we must not think of debt and public spending as simply numbers on a spreadsheet. Uh, there may be numbers on a spreadsheet, but for Mr. Peel, the experience was a reminder of the fact that his power did not come from the money. It came from the fact that the workers in England didn't have an alternative. <laughs> and in Western Australia, they had an alternative. And that's the nightmare of the powerful, that the weak are going to have alternatives. So when they hear about, you know, universal basic incomes and, you know, job uh, creation schemes and job guarantee schemes and, you know, money that goes to public education, public health, public this, public that, they think, my God, you know, Mr. Peel's uh, uh, nightmare is going to be a, become our nightmare. And of course, when you ask them, they will talk about public debt and, and, and you know, indebting, indebting the future generations and inflation and so on. But in the final analysis, I think they're following the right instinct as powerful people, as oligarchs. They understand that using the money tree that Brian mentioned in order to empower the poor is seriously circumscribing their own power. So, and that's why they love austerity, because they, 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 of course they, they love the state to spend money, but not on the little people, not on the poor people. Um, and the, all this uh, becomes presented as a commonsensical ideology of austerity. Now, just a few words for our audience. What exactly do we mean by austerity? Uh, austerity is a policy of uh, cutting government spending in order to... Um, reduce the budget deficit so as not to allow the public debt to accumulate uh, and even to run a, a, a budget surplus so as to shrink the debt. That, that's, that's what austerity, you know, tightening the belt in order to shrink the debt or to shrink the rate of increase of growth of, of debt. Now, of course, you know, we all know, or we should know, that there is a basic motivated error in this idea. And that is because they're using the wrong allegory. Uh, for you and me, if we don't spend money on shoes tomorrow or on going to the theater after the pandemic ends, okay, that money saved. But for the government, that is not the case because the government does not have the luxury of the independence between its income and its expenditure. You and I, we have this independence. We, when we don't spend money, the money is left in our pocket or bank account. But when the government is reducing public spending at the time when private, the private sector is not spending or is reducing its private spending, then the total, the sum of public and private expenditure shrinks, and that's total income. In other words, society's income shrinks, the government tax base shrinks. Uh, so that's why it's a bad idea. Austerity doesn't work. We know it has never worked. It never will work. Um, but it doesn't matter because th this allegory is functional to the interests of the strong who fear that their fate is going to be that of Mr. Peel. <laughs> so in a sense, it's a class war and it's a war against the environment. Uh, that's what austerity is, is because, you know, let's face it, capitalism uh, and the profit mo motive, the motive of capital accumulation in the leftist language uh, can never, can never value and then you know clean air when clean air doesn't have a price 
is priceless, it can never be valued, and therefore it has to be the result of public expenditure, public investment, if we're going to save the, the, the planet. So austerity is a, a war on, on, on the lower classes and on the planet. It's really very simple. And it is a war which the Mr. Peels of the world are quite happy to wage so that they maintain the power on the many in a way that Mr. Peel failed to do. So that's all I wanted to say. Uh, and I, I shall conclude with um, a point that Naomi and Stephanie, Stephanie and Naomi are going to take up. With Joe Biden in particular, but also Boris Johnson in, in Britain, there is a narrative that austerity is now finished. It was a bad idea uh, and they changed their mind. And we are going back to a kind of New Deal approach whereby um, governments now, yes, they, they learned the lesson of furlough wages, of boosting uh, demand during this pandemic, and they will continue to do this, uh, especially in the United States. Boris Johnson talks, talks the talk in Britain, but I haven't seen the numbers to back it up. The European Union also talks the talk, but it is, of course, absolutely and totally austerian in its practice. Uh, but nevertheless, there is this discussion that coronavirus, sort of alluding to what Brian said before, may be giving us a new turning point where austerity is no longer in vogue. Uh, I am very skeptical about this. I'm not going to explain why. This is time for me to shut up and pass the button. I think I'm, Stephanie should come in because I, I can feel the pulsating need to answer Brian's questions. Okay, well, I wish that I had been as smart as Naomi, who I think was jotting down Brian's questions, and I just sat here and listened to them. So I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a. Where listening. did the money come from? That was the question. Where did, did the money come from? Oh, well, where Is did there it a money tree? Yeah. Is it debt? Are we going to have to pay it back in the future? Yeah. You know, so these are the questions. Let's do, let's do that. Where did the money come from? Because, um, you know, I think we have right now in the rear view mirror, just very, very clear examples of exactly how governments muster the firepower to commit to spending trillions and trillions of dollars. When just months before, everybody was talking about, you know, if we wanna spend money, we have to find money, how will you pay for it? I mean, if you think back to, you know, 2019 and um, the presidential campaign and the Democratic primaries. And, you know, we had a very crowded uh, slate of Democratic presidential hopefuls. You, you, Giannis, Naomi, and I know well uh, some of the people who were vying for the vice president, uh, for the presidential nomination on the Democratic side. And people had you know, platforms that ranged in ambition from very, very progressive, um, big ticket things, you know, a $16 trillion Green New Deal, uh, canceling all student loan debt. I mean, very ambitious, all the way down, you know, the scale to the other end, the, the more moderate sort of things. But every single candidate at every turn was dogged by the question, how will you pay for it? Where will the money come from? And every candidate attempted to demonstrate where the revenue would come from, how the taxes would be increased to generate the revenue to allow for this spending to take place. Everything happened in this sort of a budgeting framework, right? The idea that you have to find the money and pay for your spending. And then COVID happened. Right. And this is just months later, really. And it's March of 2020. And all of a sudden, without really a moment's hesitation, Congress begins spinning out multi-trillion dollar spending packages, and not just in the US, not just Congress, but around the world. Governments are committing huge sums of money. And so when we say, you know, how did they do it? Where did the money come from? Here's what happens. Congress writes a bill. And in our case, in March, the biggest bill was known as the CARES Act. That was a $2.2 trillion piece of legislation. That legislation is Congress's way of ordering up, okay, $2.2 trillion from its bank, from the Federal Reserve. Congress did not go out hat in hand to China or to the investor class or to anyone else and raise up 2.2 trillion, they don't have to. Congress has the power of the purse. Congress can commit to spending money that they do not have. 
right? What they do is pass the bill. And if the votes are there, the money follows. In a, in a very real sense, the votes are the pay for. The votes are where the money comes from. Mm. So once the bill is, is drafted and once the votes are there and the legislation is passed, the spending happens as the central bank, the government's fiscal agent, carries out the payments that have been authorized by Congress on behalf of the U.S. Treasury. Now, how do they carry out payments? Wait for this. I can't hold up my keyboard because I'm using my laptop, but if I could hold up my keyboard, I would hold up my keyboard because that's how the payments are carried out. The Federal Reserve uses nothing more than a computer keyboard to credit the appropriate bank accounts with digital dollars that are known as reserves. And then the recipient of those funds has their account credited by their bank. So this is all done electronically through crediting of bank accounts, and that's where the money comes from. So we've seen it. We saw it with the $2.2 trillion in March. They did it again in December of last year, a $900 billion package. And then just last month, Congress came in with one more COVID rescue package, $1.9 trillion. Again, a piece of legislation that sent just one set of instructions to the Federal Reserve go change the numbers up in the appropriate bank accounts. If you got that $1,400 check, you got a credit to your account, the keyboard uh, did the work, and the digital dollars appeared in your account. If you're getting extra unemployment compensation, that's how that's happening. So what we're entering now is a different phase. And I think this is where I'm going to wrap up with this, Giannis, but this is where I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I don't think that we have, you know, broken the austerity mindset altogether because what Democrats are talking about now with this climate slash infrastructure package is you know, something that's been proposed by the White House, something on the order so far of 2.25 trillion, but this time they want to quote unquote pay for it. They don't want to pass this bill the way the last three bills that I just described were passed. They want to offset the spending, which means they want to send two sets of instructions to the central bank. One set of instructions that tells them to go out and credit the bank accounts of the workers who will do the work repairing America's crumbling infrastructure, putting up electric vehicle charging stations and doing care work and all the rest, those people will get credits to their accounts. The other set of instructions would tell the central bank to debit, mark down the numbers in the accounts of many corporations because Congress has decided that it wants to write a bill that says we're gonna spend money, but we're also going to raise taxes. So two sets of instructions, and this is falling more into a kind of, I don't wanna necessarily call it austerity, but when Biden went before the American people and talked about this, he said that his plan would raise more revenue than he is even proposing to spend. And he added that that would help reduce the deficit and debt long-term. So when you hear stuff like that, that's definitely beginning to sound an awful lot like uh, an administration that's starting to worry about deficits and debt. Naomi. Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like Stephanie and I have had this debate a little bit where I, I just am like, I'm really in favor of raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy. And I were, I, I under, I get the, and I think, I think you are too, like in theory, um, we want to do it not because we need it to pay for this, uh, but because we have absolutely untenable levels of inequality um, and we need redistributive policies because inequality of the kind that we have is a moral hazard. It's, 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 it's epically dangerous that we have a billionaire class with so much excess capital that they're able to not only buy off our political class, but build multiple escape routes, including literally their planet Bs, right? The, the, uh, the, uh, the slogan of the climate justice movement is there is no planet, planet B, but um, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk beg to differ um, because they're, they're building rocket ships to go there uh, to escape the mess they've made. And I think that that's, um, it is, it's a moral hazard for the wealthy to not have to live in the mess that they create. The, the rockets to Mars are 
an extreme expression of this, but I think we're seeing the retreat of the wealthy into sort of gated castles of various kinds um, in, in extreme forms throughout the pandemic, right? And I think the sort of stay at home orders have really accelerated that process where it's like, you know, the home has the classroom, the home has the boardroom, the home has everything that you need and anything that you don't have can be delivered by drone or through some no-touch technology and so on. So I, I don't, I, I'm interested, Stephanie, that you that you feel that, 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 the, that the tax increase is the tell that we are going to face austerity because my fear is that if we don't, have the tax increase that it increases our chances of a couple years down the road being told oh we we, we've driven up the deficit so much that now we can't do anything more and we know that even though two point you said two five is a staggering sum it's also not enough um you know if we want to have uh climate action on this uh, at the speed and scale that we actually need to, 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 to prevent catastrophic warming, it's about a third of the size of the spending that we need. So I'm worried that if we don't increase taxes and increase revenue, that it accelerates the point at which we get told, sorry, coffers are empty, we can't do anything. Um, but but uh, tell me why I'm wrong, Stephanie, because... Uh... <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. I think that almost no one any longer believes the coffers are bare, the deficits of the past constrain the spending capacity of the future. We were told that with the Obama deficits, we need a Simpson-Bowles commission, we have to have austerity, we're not gonna be able to survive, my God, the deficit, the deficit, so we got austerity. And we got the pivot to austerity, we got Trump. Trump comes in and he wants to do these huge tax cuts and people like Larry Summers, right? Who was treasury secretary under President Clinton. He was Obama's senior economic advisor, head of the National Economic Council. Larry goes ballistic. Larry hates the idea of the Republican tax cuts. He does one of his interventions. He goes all over the media. In November of 2017, Larry's all over the place. And he's saying, if the Republicans pass these tax cuts, these are his words, we will be living on a shoestring for decades to come because of the increase in the deficits. We will be living on a shoestring for decades to come. Republicans passed the tax cuts the following month. Deficits increase, CBO says by 1.9 trillion over 10 years. We have a huge increase in the deficit. What happens? Growth picks up a little bit, unemployment goes down a little bit, inequality widens, inflation stays low, coronavirus comes, and we're spending trillions and trillions of dollars. So what I'm saying first is, I think everyone can now see that you know, the government doesn't have to keep its powder dry. We don't have to run small deficits or anything like that in order to be able to afford to do things in the future. Now, the bigger point for me, Naomi, is this, and I did a thread yesterday because I get really agitated about where I think this administration is going right now and the mistakes I see them making. So here's what we have. The Biden administration says 2.25. That's what they come out with and they wanna pay for every penny of it mostly through increased taxes on corporations. They wanna take the corporate income tax rate from 21% back up uh, up to 28%, right? Republicans dropped it from 35% to 21. Democrats wanna go from 21 to 28. Well, Biden does. But already a number of Democrats are yeah. saying no. They're pushing back. They don't wanna to go to 28. They're buying into this, we'll lose competitiveness and all that sort of stuff. Maybe we'll go to 25. Now, as soon as you do that, You've given up some revenue. So then what do you do? Do you then scale down the ambition of your spending package because you've lost some revenue? So you say, well, we can only do a smaller package now. Do you start fighting over different taxes to increase? Do you really think, do you really think that in this Senate that we have today, that you have 50 Democrats who will vote for a slew of tax increases, I guarantee you there is no, there is not support for a wealth tax. Forget about it. It's, mm -hmm. it's impossible. What about all the rest of the things that you might imagine that Democrats could do? That you're going to have a hell of a fight. 
I'm, I'm seriously concerned that the votes aren't there. Yeah. If the votes are there, terrific. Go for no, it. No, they're not there. Joe Manchin's not going to vote for a tax increase. Well, yes. Yeah. So, so here's the thing that I said in this thread. I said, if the votes are there, great. Go knock yourselves out. Push taxes up. Do your offsets and, and you know, play, play the pay for game. Go do it. But what if the votes aren't there? I want to know that there's a plan B. And so I suggested a plan B yesterday. The IRS commissioner testified yesterday before I think the Senate Finance Committee, uh, Senator Wyden's committee. The IRS commissioner comes in and he sits down and he says, you know, if we had enough funding to enforce the tax laws that are already on the books, we could get an extra $1 trillion a year. That's 10 trillion over 10 years, which by the way, is the same number that people like Ed Markey and AOC are saying we should be spending 10 trillion, not 2.25. So Kelton comes on and does a big Twitter thread and says, hey, has anybody noticed that there's 10 trillion in low hanging fruit here? You don't even have to vote to raise a single tax, give the IRS the resources they need, let them go out and generate you 10 trillion and go for the much bigger package. So that's where I am. Yeah, I, that sounds great to me. And I, I definitely think strategically, the push needs to be to just spend and don't hold it back. Just yeah. spend, improve people's material lives and get a bigger majority um, because this is just too close. It gives way too much power to certain people. Um, and, 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 and they will fight that too because of what Yana said earlier about what austerity is really about. It's about disciplining uh, a workforce. And, you know, as you were talking, Yanis, about Mr. Peel, I was remembering this quote um, from a DuPont executive uh, in 1933 opposing FDR's New Deal. And I think it was 33, maybe it was 34, um, where he was complaining that uh, he had lost five servants because the government was paying uh, such good wages for people to uh, to build things and paint things. Um, and he wasn't able to hold on to his household staff. It was just a disaster for him, right? Um, and I think if we think about that as a microcosm for what um, Silicon Valley is really going to be worried about, and, and then think about the, the recent union drive at an Amazon warehouse that failed, but it failed in a context where there was no competition. If you listen to workers in Bessemer um, who voted against the union, it's like, look, this is a, an abusive job. It, it's punishing on the body, but it pays $15 an hour and it has some benefits and they're the only ones offering it, right? Um, so, you know, we need to be thinking about front loading um, the, the direct creation of, of well-paying job be, in part because that empowers workers to demand more, right? Because they're going to be the force that are going to be demanding. And, and related to this is the push for um, better protections for, for unionization under the PRO Act, which um, I think is another really key piece of this. So how do, how do we change the dynamics so that we can win that full 10, 10 trillion to actually um, deal with the climate crisis? Yeah, you know, just earlier today, I read that um, on this very day, a number of Republicans in the Senate are introducing a bill to establish one of these fiscal responsibility commissions like a Simpson Bowles 2.0. And they want this this they want to assemble a bipartisan commission and charge them with the mandate of working together on a plan to balance the budget. So if you're, when you say they're going to fight back and make sure that, that money is not spent on poor people, on improving the lives materially of people and yeah. dealing with climate, this is all part of the way that they're laying, attempting to lay the foundation for that. Now, I hope that they won't find a single Democrat to sign on you know, to that uh, legislation. But you know, you've got a number of these people who for many years have flexed their you know, uh, fiscal hawkery bona fides and, and viewed themselves as, you know, hawkish on uh, the budget and so forth. So I get worried about, you know, a number of, of Democratic senators who might align with these Republicans around the establishment of a commission like this, which would just undermine completely the progressive agenda. And, and I think we need to... Um be really clear that whether we're talking about the US or we're talking about the UK or, or certainly in, I'm in Canada right now, um, 
you know, austerity, a lot of it plays out not at the federal level, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. about cities, it's about it's about provinces and states. And, you know, this is what's determining education budgets, which and we're already starting to hear the first cries of look, you know, we lost our tax base, we can't afford public transit, we can't afford to, to pay for education. I, and Brian, I really want to come back to your question around what about growth? Because I think we haven't tackled that. And I think that that is the elephant in the room. And it's actually weirdly possible that we could spend trillions of dollars building out green infrastructure and increase carbon emissions. Because um, if we aren't dealing with consumption, um, it, 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 it's possible to have a, a green carbon boom, uh, as, as contradictory as that is. So what we need to be doing is investing in low carbon sectors. We need to be, um, we need to be looking at what actually improves quality of life um, and investing in, uh, y- y- you know, access to nature, um, recreation, um, giving people shorter work weeks, um, really investing in well-being and the care economy and moving away from, from endless consumption, fighting for the right to repair um, and 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 dealing with the the mentality that we can just shift from fossil fuel extraction to green energy and live exactly how we're living, as Arundhati Roy says, you know, middle class environmentalists ask the question, how do we change without changing? Um, and the answer is, we don't. We actually have to change how we live. Um, and so, um, so I think that that's that that's a really really key question. Um, and yeah, I, I, I also think that re- whether we're dealing with a revenge of the real is another important question, because I think in some ways we are. And in another way, we're dealing with a retreat into screens. Um, and this brings up my other austerity fear, which is what the agenda is of Silicon Valley and all this. Um, because what I worry about is cities going broke and... Um, and then smart cities coming in as the fix. And I'll give an example from Toronto where uh, Google tried to, um, uh, they tried to use Toronto as this laboratory for the smart city idea. So they tried to um, do this thing called, they, they, Google has this division called Sidewalk Labs and they were gonna do Sidewalk Toronto. Basically their pitch was to the Toronto City Council you can't fix the potholes. You can't invest in green energy. You can't invest in in in, in um, public transit. We'll do it all. We'll build a beautiful emerald green city, but we're also going to put you all under the most intense surveillance and data extraction. You know that we see anywhere outside of China. Um, and thankfully, Toronto fought back. And in the middle of the pandemic, and it was just a little you know footnote to all the drama. Um, Google pulled out of the Sidewalk Labs, canceled their Toronto contract. But the CEO of Sidewalk Labs, when they pulled out, said, we don't think we got off on the right foot with Toronto, but we see all kinds of post-pandemic opportunities. And what I read between the lines there is cities around the world are going to be dead broke and we're going to come in and save the day. And we just have to have this on our radar in how we think about what us, what the next phase of austerity looks like. It's trading our privacy for um, you know this kind of tech enclosure and privatization through the back door. One thing I would add on um, on the growth issue is this: you know, for so many years, the obsession was with Debt, so-called debt sustainability and with debt to GDP ratios, right? This idea that there was some, for a while we were told tipping points that if countries allow their debt relative to their GDP to reach 90%, this is a threshold of some kind to tip over the 90% uh, level and then a lot of bad things happen, the risk of fiscal crises and slower growth and all this stuff, right? So the countries that saw their debt 
maybe approaching that so-called tipping point, then become obsessed with trying to wrestle the debt ratio down. And Giannis talked in the opening about you know the, how counterproductive austerity is. So you start focusing on the numerator, the debt. How do we bring the debt down? Austerity. So you start cutting spending, but one person's spending is another person's income. And so you undermine the ability of that person to spend in an economy that runs on sales, right? Capitalism runs on sales, which generate revenue, which generates the profit that makes capitalism viable. So you you adopt austerity to try to target the numerator, the debt, as in an attempt to reduce the numerator to bring the whole ratio down. But what happens is you crush the economy, so GDP falls, so the ratio actually gets bigger, so austerity doesn't work. But the other piece is that we become obsessed with the idea of growing our way out of debt. So if you focus on the denominator instead of the numerator, then the strategy, the economic strategy can become, we just need to grow really fast. And if we can grow fast enough, we can outrun our debt problem. And so I think in a lot of ways for many countries, the the obsession with growth is very much bound up with this obsession that countries have about the idea that the debt is unsustainable, that it represents a burden on the future and that you've got to get the, you know, get the ratio down in order to, have, you know, a fiscally sustainable um, sort of situation. And, and I think that that then feeds this, um, this growth obsession, which Naomi's talking about, we have to get away from. Well, you know, it, it, that really um, reminds me of something I've been thinking about around when people talk about the New Deal. Um, they often say, but, but yeah, but it failed, right? It failed because actually it didn't pull the U.S. into a growth position. So because, and because we define failure as anything short of growth, right? Um, and we define success, a successful economy as an economy that's in a boom, you know, we all know the narrative, right? It wasn't the New Deal that pulled the, that ended the, 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 the Great Depression. It was the Second World War, the post-war boom. That was also what set off suburban sprawl and, and, and a level of consumption that is at the heart of the climate crisis. So did, and I always kind of accepted this idea that the Green, that, that the New Deal failed. But I guess I want to ask the economists, like, did it fail? Because it did create jobs and it pulled a lot of people out of poverty. Do we have to start telling people that it didn't fail? Of course, it didn't fail. <laughs> no, I agree with I agree with Giannis. No, well, I, I did not say that it failed at all. To the descendants of, of, of the millions of people, and people talk that way about Japan. Today. I was just going to say, Stephanie, talk to the descendants of the millions of people. Oh, okay, go. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I think you could probably talk a lot more about that. I was just going to say, you know, it's in some ways it reminds me of the discussion that we keep hearing about Japan today that um, Japan has you know, been growing very slowly, has very uh, low inflation, uh, you know, usually around 1% or less than 1%. And somehow we've decided, we, you know, uh, the profession, academic uh, economists in particular, policymakers, that Japan is, is, uh, is a, a fail. It's, it's a failure that they don't have rapid growth. And I, and I go to Japan and I look around and everything is beautiful. The infrastructure is, is first rate. Things work. People are happy. You know, it's, it's not evident that, uh, that Japan is experiencing deep economic difficulties. Uh, it's just that people have decided that economies are supposed to grow faster than 2% and inflation is supposed to be a little bit higher. And if you don't achieve those metrics, then somehow, you know, it's, it's viewed upon, it's viewed as a, as, as a failure in some sense, failure of policy. Just a, a quick snippet. Um, I think I have the right to speak on this matter because I'm calling you from uh, the epicenter, from ground zero of austerity and of the debt spiral that you were desc describing, Stephanie. Um, he, 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 our 1933 moment came in 2014, you know, three years after our 1929 moment, which was, you know, uh, in 2011 here in Greece. We already had lost 28%, 25% of GDP, right? Um, now, if there was a new deal at that moment, uh, 
and things had destabilized and started improving on a per capita basis. And people actually, you know, had fewer wrinkles on their faces and could sleep at, at night without worrying how, you know, what kind of day they would have the next morning. That would have been a majestic success. And we didn't have that. We had a continuation of the downward spiral, which we still have today. So if the New Deal did for Americans that we, we you know, the, the favor that we um, man, failed to provide to our people in 2014, it was a major success. Also, soil conservation, uh, the, the sense of community, all those intangibles yeah. that effectively stopped America from becoming a fascist country. Mm -hmm. uh, America would have become a fascist country without the, the New Deal. How do you measure the value of having avoided fascism? <laughs> Mm -hmm. So how important is it to fight for different economic indicators in a moment like this? Because so long as GDP okay. is the measure of success, this will be wielded against us as a weapon. Definitely. I mean, there are um, people, I think it's important, and there are people like, there's a very uh, interesting guy named Philip, Philip Lawn. He's an Australian economist, and he has developed... Uh, an alternative um, measure of well-being. He calls it the GPI, the Genuine Progress Indicator. It takes into account a variety of things, uh, including benefits surrounding uh, investments in climate, costs, benefits, uh, you know, a more comprehensive uh, way to think about, you know, how to, how to talk about a country's improvements in national well-being over time. And he's trying to get the OECD, World Bank, others to, you know, adopt. Because he's built this stuff out, and it's sort of there for the taking if he could get, um, you know, broader interest in disseminating and tracking measures like this. I think it's important. Something that... Can um, I... Can, I'm sorry, sorry Brian. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to play devil's advocate for just a second, Stephanie, on this. You see, the problem with capitalism is that whatever indicators you and I create and follow, uh, the fact of the matter is that if you are indebted uh, as an individual, as a company, as a household, and you have a, a mortgage that is um, non-performing and you have people trying to foreclose on your house, or if you are the finance minister, because I've, I've had that terrible experience, and... Uh, uh, you have to grow your tax revenue in order to try to, to pretend that you're repaying a debt that can never be repaid, then whatever indicators uh, wonderful economists come up with, they're irrelevant. Uh, so it, the, 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 this is me playing devil's advocate. Uh, we need far more radical change than that. Mm. We need to have major debt restructuring, both at the private and the public level, for countries that don't have the exorbitant privilege of the United States, you know, our country here cannot print our own currency, as you know. Therefore, we cannot go through the process of creating money the way you described um, the Fed being able to. Um, uh, there are many countries around the world, either because they're not printing their own currency or because they are borrowing in a currency that they're not printing. Uh, so I will shut up with two questions. The first one is uh, primarily for Naomi. We have three economic blocks. We have the United States, major economic blocks. The United States, the European Union, and China. How far away are each one of them, or how close are they, to your notion of a Green New Deal? Uh, and that's, yeah, that's one question. The second question is, can we ever imagine being able, through simply macroeconomic means, to ameliorate for the fact that the Mr. Peels of the world given the ownership structure of capitalist corporations, will always have the power and the motivation uh, to be austerian in order to prevent the masses, the many, from gaining power. Um, okay, those are great, big questions. Um, and I, I want to know what, what Brian was about to say, too. <laughs> What were you about to yeah, say? Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, yes. Well, maybe maybe that connects somewhat with um, what Yanis was just saying. I want to go back to COVID and to say that could it be that one of the legacies of COVID is that they've it has changed our sense of values. For instance, in England, we suddenly discovered that there was a class of people called essential workers, 
and we also discovered that those were the people who consistently earn less than everybody else. So these people who we suddenly all depended on for our lives, literally, are the lowest paid people in, in the British economy. And the other thing we discovered was that we cared about other people in ways that we had perhaps forgotten. You know, we've been for 10 years in the grip of a kind of media system that has basically been monetized by hate and anger. That's, that's where the money is in social media and actually in straightforward television and newspapers as well. More and more, you know, there's some very interesting writing about this. More and more, we've been encouraged to, to be hating each other and to be angry with each other. And certainly what has happened in England over the last year is, is the, funnily enough, even though we've all been in lockdown and isolation, is the rediscovery of a sense of community. People have been helping each other, um, realizing that they actually liked each other. <laughs> they, they miss each other when they, when they don't meet up. And this, the thing you mentioned, the care economy, seems to me the place that we should really be looking at now. Um, this this re reconnecting because this atomization has been catastrophic not only for our social relationships but also for our environmental impact if we're all going to have all of these wonderful new products um, because we're all individuals and we deserve them um, there's no future in that so um, I'm I'm wondering whether the the kind of combination of that and the disenfranchisement of the magical thinking leaders means that we really are on a different on a new path now i think i think there are a couple of paths before us um and right now we're trying to go down both at the same time mm. um and we have to choose. And, and I think that, that this should sort of inform what we prioritize. Because I agree entirely with you, Brian, that there is that, that this period has been a period of revelation of interconnection in lots of ways. And I don't think that it's um, it's I don't think it's a coincidence that we've also seen this huge racial justice uprising and that it has been more multiracial than previous moments like this yeah. at the moment where we have felt our interdependencies more and also how racialized those inequalities are of who the, who those essential workers are and who who is most unpaid and unvalued mm -hmm. uh, among them. And so... Um, I think as we as we move out of this the lockdown period, um, and some of us are still very much in it. Um, what what do we prioritize? And I think that what we want we should prioritize are those projects that build on these revelations of community. Like so, just um, thinking about the New Deal, right? I, I, I think um, some of the programs uh, of that era that are, would be most important to, to revive are the funding, funding for the arts, yes. funding for theater, mm -hmm. funding for public mural projects, funding for um, uh, like, like the Civilian Conservation Corps that, that, that built um, hundreds, 800 state parks and, 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 and enshrined the right to nature or, or, and, and treated depression, not just as an economic state with all respect to the economists, but as a, but as a psychic and psychological state. And so we need to invest in the things that pull people literally out of depression. Right. Um, but also things we do together so that we continue to build on this experience of, yeah, we actually like each other. We want to spend time with each other. Um, because we can't do everything at once. So let's really prioritize those things that are going to deepen those lessons because there's also a way in which I really fear them being swamped away by this kind of get shopping again, America, yeah. and we have to revive the economy. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I just add one thing to that? Um, what has happened in the last year partly because of Zoom and partly because we've had no choice other than to use Zoom for many things, is that there's been an incredible 
thickening of relationships on quite a global level. So I'm, I'm involved in the environmental movement and I have to say I do six, 12, 15, 20 Zooms a week talking with people like all of you who I could never meet in normal life in this little village in Norfolk where I'm living. Um, <laughs> suddenly there's a, I think there's a huge, I think of it like the mycorrhizal connections underneath a forest. You know, we see the trees and it all looks pretty much like it's looked for years and years. But underneath, there's this incredible thickening and coalescence of thoughts and conversations and so on going on. So I think we're in the middle of a kind of revolution which hasn't quite been noticed yet. It's not on the media radar because as so often is the case, the, the radar is pointing in the wrong direction. It's pointing at politics and it's pointing at uh, pundits and media and so on. So it's, it's telling those stories. But there's another story happening now. Uh, I'm very aware of it because I seem to be woven into it now, which is absolutely dramatic. There is so much intellectual activity going on of a kind that wasn't apparent at all two years ago. Um, so I, I've become much more optimistic as a result of that. Um, as I say, it's not showing up yet, but when it does, that's like the ignition point. Then there's liftoff when, when people become aware of each other. You know, there's this huge movement, as I keep saying, the biggest movement in human history, the, the fight to save the planet. There's never been anything like it in terms of the number of people involved, but we're, we're not quite self-aware yet. It's a movement that isn't quite self-aware. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Can I, let me, I'm going to push back on Giannis's pushback because <laughs> to say that we need different metrics is not to say choosing a different metric and then you, you're done, right? Switch metrics and you don't have to do anything else to make material improvements. The idea of the genuine progress indicator, the way I think about it, is that it helps to do what Brian was talking about, right? We have to see each other and we have to see the problem. So if we had, you know, I'm just using the genuine progress indicator as an example, but it's like a mirror. It forces you to hold a mirror up to the country and to evaluate where are you falling short across a whole range of things that you're paying attention to. And in terms of, you know, the idea that, and capitalism is always going to be, you know, riddled with these flaws, that it is by design a system which is oppressive to those who find themselves at will workers, right? You, you, are, you are a worker who, um, off, you, you know, usually has your health care tied to your employment. You are, um, you can, you know, wake up one morning with a job and wake up the next day without a job and without the health care and all the other things. So one of the things that I would love to see us making more progress on is moving toward you know something like an fdr economic bill of rights where you do establish public options a public option in the labor market public option in banking so that you have you know the freedom to opt out of uh, financial relationships with wall street banks or whatever it is public option in education public colleges and universities becoming tuition free gives agency right um knowing that you have a secure retirement that you don't have to depend upon 401ks and other uh investment schemes to try to build some sense of security for you know your later years in life this is what and 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 a right to a, a clean environment a job at a decent wage you know all of the things that fdr talked about those were things that senator sanders in his campaign you know put forward as part of his platform that people ought to have basic rights secured in these areas and i think you know it's still capitalism but i i guess i was brought up uh, very much on Minsky and Hyman Minsky, I think one of the great economists of the last century, Minsky used to say there are as many varieties of capitalism as Heinz has pickles, you know, and the Heinz pickles slogan is 57 varieties. So you have the kinds of capitalism that failed badly leading up to the Great Depression, the kind of capitalism that FDR helped to build that, you know, 
produced better outcomes for millions of people, rising incomes and, and better economic conditions and better labor conditions and so forth. And then as we whittle those away over the years from Reagan, especially on, uh, then finance capitalism and, and a harsher version. And so I think there are just ways to, um, to, you know, introduce safeguards, various protections for people that get us to, um, you know, the kind of a world that I think we're all talking about trying to build. Except, Stephanie, that if you give a public option to the labor market, uh, you're effectively allowing workers to do what Mr. Peel's workers did and therefore collapse capitalism. I don't believe you can give a genuine public option, and I'm all for it, giving a genuine public option to workers in the labor market without actually collapsing the labor market. But That's why, you know, my, my, my dogma, if you want, because I'm not, we don't have time to discuss it, is that you can't really get rid of austerity until you get rid of tradable shares. But that's another discussion, I'm sure. Part can two. I, can I interrupt just for one sec? I know Naomi's got to go. So we, we just want, I would just Okay, want you guys figure this out. Time. I'm uh, just going to put in a word for eco-socialism and tell you all that I love talking with you. And um, I look forward to, to much, much more. And I love that image of yours, Brian, um, of, uh, of we're the network under the trees. I love that. I love that. Um, all of the understory. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Naomi. Good to see you, Naomi. I also Frank, want to, do you want to, to, to wrap it up? I mean, obviously, we, we could go on for, for another two hours, but uh, it's been uh, an incredibly interesting and dense chat. We've had, um, I want to apologize to uh, people that have actually asked a lot of questions on the chat, but we won't have time to answer all of your questions. Um, I wanted to, um, to thank you, Stephanie for taking part and um, enlightening us, enlightening us on, um, on uh, economics and, and many other things. I mean, I had one question, which was more a comment, actually. Uh, someone wrote, um, everything you say is right, but unless we can organize into a powerful mass movement, will it mean anything? Um, are we not bored of being merely, merely correct? And that's, I guess, a key question that we won't have to answer tonight, but uh, Brian touched upon it. We obviously need to, you know, educate, mobilize, organize. So uh, I don't know if Yanis, Brian, you want to say a quick word to wrap it up, but... Um... I will just say, reiterate quickly that it is happening. I think there is a coalescence going on and it's happening very, very fast. Um, and it will suddenly become apparent and we'll suddenly look around and think, Jesus, the world is a completely different place from what I imagined. Um, we, we're used to thinking of ourselves as the outsiders, as the people who are sort of the resistance to this huge system that is eternal, that is strong and has lobbyists and lots of money. And we're the outsiders kind of chinking away at it. But, but I think what we're soon going to do is look around and realize that actually they're the minority we are a vast majority and we're actually comparatively well organized. So I, I think it will be a little bit like um, what happened at the end of the Soviet Union where the system collapsed and everybody just got on with life. They were ready for it. People had actually prepared themselves for it. They had got in place all their workarounds and the system didn't actually do much any longer. So I, I think, I hope <laughs> that that's where we're going. Um, Stephanie is probably... Stephanie must have the last word, but let me just say quickly regarding organizing, we are organizing. Um, yes. Stephanie is part of a, of a movement in the United States, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and so on, elected Joe Biden um, when Bernie was effectively blocked yet again. Um, uh, in Europe, we have DiEM25. Across the world, uh, we are all, and Naomi is part of the Progressive International. We're together in this. So we are organizing. This is not idle talk. It is essential talk because we, you cannot organize unless you also organize your thoughts uh, around the campaigns and the actions that are necessary. Stephanie. 
No, I, I would just say thank you to all of you for the opportunity to, to join you. And uh, yes, I mean, you know, I worked for, for Bernie. So uh, I heard him say, if I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times, you know, change never comes from the top down. It always comes from the bottom up. And uh, and I think that's exactly what Brian is, is saying. That's what we all understand. And so I think, you know, we're throwing our shoulders into these movements uh, around the world and, and trying to be part of, you know, uh, accelerating that change that Brian thinks we're inevitably on the cusp of. And I, I hope you're right. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> thank you so much, Stephanie. It's a really thank nice thanks. Thanks again, everyone. And thanks for everyone watching, of course. The next show will be on May 13th. So we'll send more info about this uh, soon. Um, again, thanks. Thanks a million, everyone.